I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 10, verse 15 verses, Matthew 10. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax gatherer, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any of the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey, or even two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And to whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if your house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, Shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. Now I'll pray. God, again, are just so grateful, Lord, for your, your grace that you've extended to us in the Lord Jesus, the one who is our very life. Thank you, God, for all your goodness to us and that you love us and that you're constantly drawing us to yourself. We want you, Lord, to be exalted in our hearts, that we would yield to you, give you your rightful place, and that we would just say yes, Lord, to all that you are saying to us. Work in us, God, as only you can, where we need to be ministered to, to be comforted, to be strengthened, to be encouraged, challenged, admonished. God, use your word to speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Spring break is over for his hill, so sorry, students. <laughs> it's great to have you back. Um, we missed you. Um, Kevin had, I think, eight or nine with him in Albania, so they had a safe trip. We were praying for that, so thankful the Lord got them there and back safely. And Mark and Audrey had a group of 28 in San Antonio, I think it was. They were really suffering for Jesus there, um, staying in a house 12,000 square feet, and they never even saw each other during the week as they... Just each found their private places in that huge house. But um, they had a great week as well in San Antonio, visiting different um, religious places and doing some service projects and things. The other students were just off having fun, and um, we'll all be back together um, tomorrow for class. Well, in this chapter 10, I, I really um, am prepared to, to, to work through the whole chapter, but there's a lot here. The first verses that I just read um, are dealing with a situation that was in the past, I believe, and then verses 16 through 23, a, a situation that is yet to come in the future, and then the rest of the chapter about um, our present situation. But in this past situation here, and I, and I think it's important to stress this because Jesus is, is sending these disciples out on, 
what some people call a short-term missionary trip. And so it'd be the first short-term missions um, ever. We don't know how long it lasted, but it wasn't very long. And Jesus sent these men out two by two um, to go to the various villages and cities of Israel. And um, in doing so, we're told right from the beginning that he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then that's repeated again, so obviously being emphasized when it says um, in verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. And this is a passage that is often used to support the idea that we have the same authority today that these men had at that time. And I think that perspective is in the wrong, well, first of all, it's putting the emphasis in the wrong place, but I think it's also um, a wrong application. Um, I am, I do not, um, I'm not going to challenge this morning or get into the issue of whether or not Christians have this authority. That's not my point. The point is, is this passage for Christians today? And I would say there are, are principles here that are for today, as we'll see. There are certainly applications here that are for today. But we can't use this passage to say that Christians today have authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, including leprosy, and also raise the dead. Maybe we do. I would just say this is not the passage that we can use to prove that. Rather, what we're supposed to do when we look at this passage is not see what kind of authority do we have, but what kind of authority does Jesus have. And it is all-encompassing. That's really the point here. And so look at verse 5. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any of the city of the Samaritans. So that's why this verse is sometimes, or this passage is sometimes called the lesser commission. Because the greater commission, as we like to call it, is at the end of Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. Well, this is not going into all the world. This is only staying in the confines of Israel and not speaking to Gentiles or Samaritans. So this is not for all Christians. This was for these men for this brief time for one short-term mission, Jesus says, this is the scope of your ministry. It does not include Samaritans and Gentiles. Don't talk to them. Wow. So we know it's not his heart to not win the lost. He is concerned for all. He gave himself for all. And he will say, make disciples of all. But this passage has limitations put on it. And when that, that very first limitation that jumps out at us is, who is Jesus directing these men to? And it was not all. It was only some. So that should give us pause and caution when we look at the other things, like what kind of authority did he give these men? If these men were not to go to all people, but only to some people, can we say that the authority that he was giving them is an authority that is given to all Christians, or was it only given to these people for this short period of time. Other things that Jesus said. Verse 7, go out and preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is a distinctively Jewish message. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to Gentiles, but this was the message, this was the gospel 
that they particularly wanted to hear. Remember, gospel means good news. And there's much good news in the Bible. But so there, there is, in other words, you've heard me say before, there is more than one gospel in the Bible. And particularly in the, in the gospel of Matthew, there are two gospels at least. The gospel of how to be saved and the gospel about the kingdom of heaven. They are not the same thing. Now, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you've been saved. But the message of how to be saved is not the message about the kingdom coming. It's good news the kingdom is coming. But it's even better news that you can be saved, that you can receive eternal life. It's good news that Jesus is coming back again. It's good news that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. There is much good news in the Bible. And in that sense, they are all Gospels. But there is only one way to be saved in the Bible. Only one way to be saved, but there's lots of good news. So as Christians, as evangelicals, we often think that Gospel is always about how to be saved. That isn't true in looking at Scripture. Scripture will use the word gospel in more than one way. And here it's the gospel of the kingdom that it is near. And so this is a distinctively Jewish message. Israel, do not recognize the day of your visitation. The hour has come for the kingdom to come to Israel. It's a very distinctive message that would not have been lost on Israel. They understood exactly what was being said. And so this is not a message of how to be saved, but a message that the, that the promised kingdom is about to break forth on the condition that you receive the king. And you can't receive the king without placing your faith in the king and therefore being saved. So that's a little different today in what we are, being to, what we are told to say, how we preach and evangelize. You can, you can say nothing about the kingdom of heaven, and yet... Win people to Christ. See people place their faith in Christ for salvation. So then he says, as more mandates that he's giving, verse 9, on this particular short-term mission trip, do not acquire gold. It seems to be, he's saying, don't take any money with you and don't receive any money. Both are off limits. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. So don't take any money with you and don't acquire any money. And he's going to say, freely you've received, freely give. So do not ask for money as you give out the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, don't take luggage with you or a bag for your journey. Don't even take a change of clothes, two tunics. Don't even take sandals, go barefoot, or a staff, a walking stick. Now, is any of that for today? See, we, we would go, I mean, this church has a lot of missionaries that, that we support, and we have sent out short-term missionaries. We had our group to, just came back from Albania. We didn't tell them, take no luggage, take no shoes. Now, one of our students went without shoes, We're, I mean, but anyway, he, <laughs> that's a different story. We didn't say that this, this is the condition for you to be a missionary you cannot take money, you can't take luggage, you can't take an extra set of clothes, you can't do any of these things. We would say that definitely that's not for today. Well, then why 
are we so quick to say the authority that he's given to these men is for today? See, my, my um, way of looking at this is just simply, if there's so much about this passage that is clearly not for today, then we can't just pull out the two verses that talk about authority over demons and authority to raise the dead and authority to cleanse lepers, we can't pull those two verses out and say, that's for today, but the rest isn't. If we as believers have authority to raise the dead and to cleanse lepers and the rest of this, we need to find other scripture to support that. This is not the go-to place because so much about this is clearly not for today. So when we look at it all in these 15 verses here, the message is very clear. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he has the mandate. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Another mandate, do not acquire money, luggage, change of clothes, or staff. Now, by the way, the staff, you can, well, man, if the guy had a broken ankle, couldn't he take a staff with him? You know, but see, it's not like a crutch. It's not even a walking stick to help you get up mountains. But people carry those staffs in order to beat off dogs because, and, and robbers and other things. It was a form of protection. And so basically what he's saying is, what do we do? See, we, we, we approach life all from, okay, Lord, I know what you're telling me to do, but I need life insurance. I need to have you know, all these things. I need to have a savings account. I need to have a means of support. And so we are constantly thinking and driven by protection and provision. And what God's trying to get across to these men is I am your protector and I am your provider. So I don't even want you to have a stick to beat off the dogs. Trust me. I don't want you to have a change of clothes. I am your provider. I don't want you to take any money with you. I am your provider. So everything about protection and provision, which is, is, is what just drives us, God is trying to get across to these men, it never has been about you. I am the one who protects you. I am the one who provides for you. You've got to understand that. If there is any one message of Scripture that is God is our provider, God is our protector, and we do not need to live thinking as though we are God when it comes to these two things. God needs us to help him. So he was sending these men out completely vulnerable, completely exposed to the realities of life so that they'd be in a place to have to trust him. So I would propose to you, this passage is not so much about the authority that we have, but rather it is about the authority that Christ has. And he has the total right over us, not, to, not only just to tell us where to go and to tell us what to preach, but even to tell us, take no money, don't even take a stick with you, no change of clothes, not a bag to carry anything in, just go even barefoot. Really? He has that kind of authority. Yes, he does. We don't like it for good reason when our governments in the last two years have basically been trying to assert the same authority. But we shouldn't be surprised because the God of this world is wanting to counterfeit all the authority of Jesus. He wants to be the world dictator. He wants to have absolute control over every single human being down to the to most minute choices that we make, how we spend our time, where we go, and everything is under his thumb. 
And we should have difficulty with that because there's only one who has that kind of authority, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should not mistake the Lord Jesus has that authority. And all the authorities that our governments have been trying to take or exercise over us in these last few years and have been doing since the beginning of time when it comes down to it, are simply trying to usurp God's place in our life. But God has this right. I wonder if, if we really accept that. That every decision, and I don't think this means that I, I have to drop to my knees and pray about every single decision that I face. Which parking lot to take, whether to put gas in my car at this gas station or that gas station. But I think it does mean that we live in such total dependence upon Christ that he is free to direct our every step. That every thought is taken captive to the obedience of Christ. I don't have the freedom and the right to think my own thoughts. Every thought taken, taken, obedience to the, taken captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. I don't have the right to think my own thoughts. That every choice that I make it's first and foremost, Lord, is this what you would have? Every time I, I, I do a wedding now, I try to, to communicate this in, in, you know, as subtly and gently as I can. Your life is over. It's now about you seeking to love this other person sacrificially. Your best thought, your only thought, should be pleasing this other person. And not about you being pleased. You die to yourself and you live for another. And this is the Christian life, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. No more choices. Major Thomas used to say, there's no more choices, simply orders to obey. No decisions to make, just orders to obey. And that is the life of freedom and liberty. It's so paradoxical to what the world says. There's no greater freedom than being under the absolute control, direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a benevolent dictator, as it were. But that doesn't mean in his benevolence that he doesn't want to have first place in every single choice that we make, preeminence. The principles here that are clearly, in addition to what I've just said, that are clearly enunciated in this passage are freely you've received, freely give. Freely you receive, freely give. That is so true in so many, many areas. I remember a guy in, in seminary, um, he, you know, he, was, he was graduating, he was getting rid of stuff that he didn't want to take with him, and he had this um, beautiful old oak um, swivel chair that was like school teachers used to always use. I mean, when I grew up, every school teacher had one of these oak swivel chairs. Heavy duty is going to last forever. And he just said, here, would you like to have this? Yeah, that's a great chair. And I like that chair. But then I'm thinking, how can I sell to another seminary student what was freely given to me? Just didn't feel right. And so when it came time for me to leave seminary, I found another seminary guy and I said, hey, this was given to me. Would you be interested in having this? Yeah, I'd love to have that. Cheers. 
I could have sold that and made 100, 150 bucks off of it, easily. Could have used that money. But how can I charge somebody else for what I freely received? How much more so with the gospel, the good news? Now, y'all aren't in the business of, and I hate to use that word, but you're not in the business of, of receiving money in exchange for preaching. But I am in that role. And I can tell you, sometimes people have been embarrassingly generous. And other times, not a nickel. <laughs> it's God's business. I'm not going and preaching places because of what I think they may or may not give. And, and, and sometimes, I'm in, one time they might give, and the next time they might not. I know a friend, he spent, it was at least six weeks, might have been eight weeks in Australia. In the entire time that he was there, the only thing he received was a jar of jam. That was it. They didn't, they didn't pay for his flights over there or back. And so he was there on his dime. But God took care of that man. And he wasn't embittered by it. He just says, different way of thinking. You know, but I went because God wanted me to go. What I freely received, I have freely given, and I trust that God's going to take care of me. Just as, as these men had to learn. There's the principle that a work, having said that, the second principle that Jesus says here is a worker is worthy of his support. And so he said, you're going to be taken care of. Not going to be, you're not going to be made rich, but you're going to be taken care of. God will make sure that you are taken care of. And then, the th and then a third principle here is that there will be judgment upon others based upon how they receive us or reject us. But it's not about us, we have to understand. It's not about how they're treating me, but it's how they're responding to Christ and the message concerning Christ. And I can just put it in God's hand. Don't make it personal. He's, you know, he's not saying walk away when people have been mistreated you. They won't receive what you have to say. Don't walk away and, and have a pity party. But walk away and say, you know, that's God's business. And God is going to deal with that. Some doors are open, some doors are closed. Some hearts are open, some hearts are closed. It's God's business. You go about your business, and God will take care of this. There is a judgment coming, and God's going to sort it all out. And there are going to be times where people are going to be harder than other times. God knows these things. And when the day of judgment comes, there are going to be a lot of places, a lot of people who will be judged more severely than even Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. We can just leave it in God's hands. So this commission is not for us. None of the mandates in this passage are for us. Therefore, I think we should say the authority that he's giving to these apostles is not for us based on this passage. Based on other passages, maybe, but not based on this passage. The principles are true. We have received freely and we should give freely. Workers should be paid and God will judge people for how they respond to the gospel and to its messengers. We also see from these verses that God determines the message, not the messengers. God determines what's to be preached. We just give what God has given to us. God can use anybody. None of these men were highly educated, highly talented, but it, they were not going out according to their ability, but according to God's authority. 
God was enabling these men and God was caring for these men and the same thing is still true today. God wants us to know that He is the one who protects and provides. He wants us to recognize that the kingdom promises belong to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And the last thing maybe to get from this passage is it's not really so much about the miracles that they were able to perform, but each miracle, in the, well, in, in the total, the miracles were really de demonstrations of compassion. And I think the idea here, the thing that we, the takeaway again, is not the authority to perform miracles, but that the gospel message ought to be accompanied with compassion. We ought to be kind, generous, loving people, especially in presenting Christ. Because if we're not kind, gentle, and loving in giving the message of Jesus Christ, then there's some problem there. Who is going to listen to us? I read the story recently of a true story of a, of a man, American, that was, that was very, very ill, and he was in a hospital, I think it was in India, and he could barely get out of bed himself, and he's just in a ward, didn't speak the language, but he had tracks um, to share the gospel in the language of the people that were in the ward with him. And he was trying to, to distribute these tracts the best as he could. Nobody wanted anything to do with them. They refused to take them. And then one night, in the middle of the night, he woke up to the man across the ward from him, old man trying to get up out of bed, and he couldn't. And he just fell back into bed. Didn't know why he tried to get up out of bed. He just knew he tried to. He groaned, he moaned, and he fell back into bed. Well, the next morning, he realized what was going on. The man was trying to get up to go to the bathroom. And he couldn't because he was so weak. So he soiled himself, soiled the sheets, and just stunk up the whole ward. Everybody was mad at him. The nurse came in, cleaned him up, and, and stripped the sheets and put more sheets on. And the last thing she did was slap him across the face. And that man's heart broke. Well, the next night, he heard the same groaning, looked over, saw the man trying to get up out of bed again to go to the bathroom. And so he got up scooped up the man in his arms, carried him into where the bathroom was, which was nothing more than a hole in the floor, and helped the man do his business, and then helped him back into his bed. Didn't say anything to anybody. He didn't think anybody knew about it, but the man he helped. But the next morning, everybody in the ward was asking for those tracts that he'd been trying to hand out. Compassion goes with the message. It's not about the miracles. The miracles were simply acts of compassion that these men are caring just as Jesus cares. That's what, what will often open what would otherwise be closed doors and hard hearts. The next section here, it, it, you, just to read it, you wouldn't see that there's a break. But we read the specifics of what Jesus is saying beginning in verse 16. You go, none of this happened. This, this did not happen. Any of this between verses 16 to 23. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but, we, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. That didn't happen. None of these men came back persecuted. They came back praising God for how God had used them. And they, and they came back telling Jesus everything that, Jesus, that, that, that had happened. They were not persecuted. 
Verse 8, and they shall even, you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Didn't, excuse me, didn't happen. Verse 19, and when they deliver you up, do not become anxious <coughs> about what you shall speak, or what, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is, my, it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. Hadn't happened yet. Verse 21, the brother will, brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Didn't happen. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. Didn't happen. All of these things are in the future. In fact, I think they still have not happened. Now, portions of this have we know that Paul stood before kings and governors, but, it, but here he's talking about something that's greater, even more intense than what Paul and those early Christians went through. Verse 22 again, you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. That same statement will be repeated in chapter 24, and we'll drill down on that a little bit more there. Suffice it to say now, this has nothing to do with salvation in terms of forgiveness of your sin and the eternal life that God gives us when we place our faith in Christ. This has to do with enduring the tribulation, the persecution that they're going through. But whenever they persecute you in this city, which they did not, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until, what? The Son of Man comes. So that's why I think these verses, 16 to 23, are yet in the future. I believe that Jesus is describing what the Bible calls the great tribulation. And that the last event that will happen at the end of that time is that the Son of Man will come again to this earth physically to establish His kingdom. So this is not uncommon in Scripture to have a prophecy that is dealing with the immediate future and then there's this gap that, we're, that it's just, what's going on? All of a sudden, it's dealing with the distant future. It happens all through the Bible. We see it in the book of Daniel. We see it in the Gospels. We see it everywhere through Scripture. That Sometimes they call it a telescoping view, a telescoping use of prophecy, where there's the immediate future, and then whoop, it extends out, and all of a sudden, you're dealing with the very distant future. That seems to be what's happening here. And so... What the Lord is saying here to them, a number of things, but the most, most basic thing is He's saying persecution's coming. Again, in the future, specifically for Israel, not excluding um, Gentile Christians, but specifically He's talking about Israel here, persecution is coming. And as it comes, there are three characteristics that ought to define our lives. We ought to be like sheep, we ought to be like snakes, and we ought to be like doves. Well, I can live with the sheep and doves. I don't like it a whole lot, but be a snake? Eh, what's, about, what's that about? Every only good snake is a dead snake, usually how I've always thought. So he says, I send you out as sheep. What is the one distinctive of a sheep? And we always want to say stupid. That's true, but that's not the biggest distinctive of a sheep. It's its helplessness. It is not able to, def to defend itself. 
This is why, I mean, one of the greatest um, arguments against evolution is the existence of sheep. <laughs> Truly. If evolution were true, there ought to be no sheep on this planet because they can't exist without something or someone defending them. So it's either going to be a human being or in many cases here in the hill country, it's a donkey. Okay, right? We put a donkey out in the field to defend those sheep because they can't defend themselves. We are sheep. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of, the, of wolves. Well, I'm, you know, God, if I had my choice, I'd rather be the wolf. Well, you don't give a choice here. You're the sheep. Sheep are defenseless. Again, powerful message here. And, and does that mean that we never defend ourselves? No, he's not saying that. I mean, the one thing a sheep can do is run. That's about its only defense. Just runs away screaming. And sometimes he's going to, verse 23, if they persecute you in this city, what? Flee. That's what sheep do. They run. Just run to the next city. And so, but that, because that's, but it, you know, it's not, there, there, there may times come where you simply cannot defend yourself. And then we feel so helpless and so defeated, and, and maybe the Lord wants us to remember, you're just sheep. And again, I am not arguing against self-defense, but I'm saying we ought to remember sheep are not able to defend themselves. And there may be situations that happen in our lives where we simply cannot defend ourselves. And I know for a fact there are many times in our lives when we could defend ourselves, and what does he say do? Don't defend yourself. Don't speak up. Don't argue why you're innocent. Keep your mouth shut and let God defend you. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and he will defend us. And there are so many troubles I know I personally would have avoided if I hadn't tried to defend myself. And I had just been a sheep and let the shepherd defend me. And he is much better at defending sheep than sheep are at defending sheep. The second thing is, is that we are to be um, he says, as shrewd as serpents. That's how the New American Standard translates it. Other Bibles translate it wise as serpents. I don't think of a serpent as being wise, but the idea here is, is practical wisdom, to be prudent, um, to be careful, to give thought. So it's not that sheep, so this is where, you know, we think sheep are stupid. No, because snakes are not stupid, okay? And so we're not to be stupid sheep, but we will be defenseless, harmless sheep who are smart sheep, like snakes. Okay? I don't think of snakes as being brilliant, but they're definitely way up the intelligence level above a sheep. And so use your brains. Be prudent. Be careful. Have a practical wisdom as you go about life. Innocent as doves. This means not naive, but simple. Not ignorant but innocent. Ignorance is not a virtue. Innocence is. And so there is a time when you have to deal with, as a parent with your kids and you know that they can't remain ignorant because they can't go through life that way. But God wants you to have knowledge while remaining personally innocent of the very thing that you know about. And we have many, many illustrations of that. Okay, so I don't have to experience everything in order to know about everything. 
So I can just know there are certain things that are unpleasing to God, they're evil, they are not honoring to God, and I can know that, I am not ignorant. But that doesn't mean I should experience those things. I should remain innocent in those things. And so the character of the Christian ought to be that of a sheep. We recognize our defense comes from God. That of a serpent, there is a practical, daily kind of wisdom that interacts with life. And innocent, simple, pure, like a dove. And then he's going to say, there are, are three responses to this persecution. And the first is that we are not to be anxious. Verse 19, when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about what you will speak, or, uh, for it will be given to you in that hour that you are to speak. Well, what about anxious about my life? Wouldn't that, I, this is what I would have said. Don't be anxious about your life. Jesus doesn't say that. Why? Because you could die. So he doesn't say, don't be anxious about your life because you don't need to worry about that. I'm going to protect you. No, we could die. But life isn't this life. And I don't have to worry about this life. What I need to be concerned about is giving testimony of Jesus in difficult circumstances, even persecution. That should be my concern. Are we really anxious about that? I mean, when, when was the last time we, I mean, we really got thought, God, you know, how do I witness to these people? And again, it's not that we have anxious thought, but we ought to get, have concern for how we bear the name of Jesus before unbelieving people. And God will fill our mouths. In that hour, when we do not know what to say, God will tell us what to say. I've seen that so many different times in my life, where God, I do not know what to say, and, and, and it's like, you know, and it's, it's a very difficult, stressful thing, and you're just in your heart, and you're saying, God, I have to have your wisdom. And you, there's no planning for it, you didn't know this thing was going to be presenting itself. And then and God will give you the words as he has promised in the moment. But it's about bearing testimony of Jesus. It's not about protecting ourselves. He says the second response is to endure. When the persecution comes, endure. Endure. Is it possible? Is there any other thing? Yes. You, it, while, endure, but see, endurance doesn't mean stay. Endurance means don't abandon the faith. That's, where, that's the endurance here. It's not because, again, the very next verse is flee. So the endurance and the fleeing are not contradictory. But it, what's the enduring? I don't forsake Christ. I don't give up on the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's an opportunity to get away from the persecution, then flee the persecution. But six realities about persecution. It's going to happen. It's not if this happens, it will happen. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Verse 17, beware of men. They will deliver you up to the courts. It's not if, it will happen. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No exceptions. Now again, I take it this passage is yet to be fulfilled in the future, but these things are still true today in terms of these principles. Persecution 
will come simply because of our identification with Jesus Christ. We haven't done anything wrong. We're hated because of Jesus. God will speak through us. It is about giving witness of Christ, not deliverance. It is going to be bad. How bad? The first thing he says is, they will deliver you up to their courts and scourge you in their synagogues. It's going, there will be a religious persecution. Second thing, they will bring you before governors and kings. There will be a political persecution, a governmental persecution. And the third thing is that, they, that, that, you, that brother will deliver up brother to death, father, his, ch his child, children will rise up again, even families will turn against each other. Is there anything left? Religious persecution, government persecution, family persecution, there's nothing left. That's how bad it could get. There is no safety, there's no corner anywhere. The only people who won't be persecuting you will be other Christians who are walking with Christ. You will be hated by all. This is not a message we typically give to brand new believers. Paul did. Read, go back and read 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And there's a lot of clues there to what Paul said to those people in three short weeks that he was with them before he had to leave because of persecution. And one of the things he told them was, you are going to be persecuted. Brand new Christians. This is why we do premarital counseling before people get married. We want them to know it's not going to be easy all the time. There's going to be hard things. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get married, but it means you ought to go in with your eyes wide open. Jesus is just giving us the facts here. Christians, we need to understand and accept it. When you place your faith in Christ, you become an alien in this world. You now are a target to the God of this world. And you should expect it that things are going to get tough. I don't like that any more than anybody else does. I'm a fearful person by nature, and I'm an anxious person by nature. So I need passages like this. This is not unusual. This doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. This is what comes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. Hated by all. This last section here, beginning in verse 24, is about what is clearly the present. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave is his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? We're going to be treated the same way that Jesus was or even worse. Verse 26, therefore do not fear them. And that's where he says, you're going to be persecuted, but don't fear them. That's saying a lot. Supernatural. To be able to go through the things that Jesus is describing and not be afraid. 
I'm listening to different people talk in Ukraine, believers, that, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ that are there. One, a former student that she's writing regularly about what's going on. She lives in Odessa. Listened to a pastor this morning on the way into church um, talking about his situation. Very encouraging, profound insights, as with our former students. Just amazing the insights that God is giving these brothers and sisters in Christ as they're per being persecuted. This pastor is saying God's word has never been more powerful in his life than what it is right now. Everything, even saying, God, give us this day our daily bread. And he's weeping as he's saying this. He says, because we are praying for daily bread. And he says, I can tell you God's word. He says, I would love for every atheist, every liberal Christian, and he just goes through the list, every agnostic to come to Ukraine right now, and I can tell you the word of God will live for them. In these circumstances, the word of God lives. Powerful. Do not fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. God is going to make it all right. He's going to expose it all. He's going to sort through the mess as only he can. When we go through marital problems and we want, you know, and, and couples get at war with each other, what do they want from a counselor? They want that counselor to you know, have everything exposed so the counselor can see who's at the biggest fault. And then you can jump down the throat of that person, beat them up in defense of the one who's been victimized. That's not what God's talking about. That's not the kind of counselor he is. He just strips away everything so there's nothing left but us and Jesus. That's what he's after. So that we have to do only with him in our own sin. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. What is that about? Commentaries, we're all going in one direction with this. Maybe they're right. I read this and I go, Jesus is just saying, one, it, one of the greatest temptations of being persecuted for your faith is to stop sh sharing your faith. If it's sharing my faith that's getting me in trouble, then guess what? I'm not a glutton for punishment. I'll stop sharing my faith. And Jesus is saying, don't stop talking. What you've had whispered to you, proclaim upon the housetops. I think that's all he's saying. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, most of the commentaries go, we should fear God. Because God could destroy body and soul in hell. Really, as a Christian, am I supposed to be concerned that God's going to destroy my body and soul in hell? I don't think so. I know not, that's not the case. I wonder if what he's saying is, fear God for other people. These people who are persecuting you, the worst they can do is kill you. But those people are going to have to stand before God. And they don't fear God, but fear God on their behalf and talk to them about the one that they don't even recognize. Talk to them. They need to hear Jesus more than anybody. Those people that would persecute you for your faith are the ones who most need to fear God and to hear concerning Jesus Christ. So for them, fear God. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? In fact, apparently in that day, I don't know why people bought sparrows. Well, I know some of it was for offerings, but you know, they were so many and so common that you would buy two sparrows for a penny, and the seller would throw in a third just for free. <laughs> They're just worth, basically worthless birds. But you, it says, are you, but you're worth more than they? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And there's one thing, I think it was J. Vernon McGee or somebody pointed out, he's not saying he knows how many hairs you have on your head. He does. But he's actually put a number on every hair on your head. These are the, this passage is like this that tell me God is concerned with every detail of my life. And it's usually older Christians that don't have any trouble accepting that. Because we've lived life long enough, we've seen that God is concerned with every detail of our lives. It's the younger Christians that think, ah, he doesn't really care who I marry just as long as I marry a Christian. And I'm going, no. If he's going to number, has numbered every hair on your head, do you think he's not concerned about who you marry? Every detail of your life is of a concern, is of concern to God. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's probably the hardest verse in this whole section. I think that what Jesus is saying is there will be rewards in heaven. He's not saying you won't go to heaven if you deny him. Peter went to heaven and he denied Christ. But he is saying you're going to lose out on some of the reward that you would have had if as a Christian you live in denial of Christ. Your, your salvation is not in question here. First John, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that if, if there is nothing left after, the, after, you, uh, after our works are examined by fire, and the only thing that's left is the foundation of Christ, he says, but you are still saved. Salvation is not in question here. But it will be possible... For Jesus to say, Father, this one did a good job. This one was faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, I would ask you to recognize this friend of mine as one who walked with me and maintained the faith throughout his entire life. And there's others where Jesus is honest. I mean, he's the truth. Can Jesus honestly say to every Christian, you maintained the faith? See, he's truth. He can't do that if it's not true. And so he won't be able to say, this one maintained the faith to the very end. This is not about salvation, but it is about being honored by the Father for simply having remained true to Christ throughout our lives. So don't fear them. Don't live in fear. I'm just going to summarize this passage because we're out of time. God knows. He knows what we're going through. Don't be silent. Fear God, not man, and even fear God for men. Trust God. We are of more value to God than the sparrows are. And God will honor those who honor Him. And those who live their lives as Christians and deny Christ will be denied by him, not denied entrance into his presence, 
not denied eternal life. Eternal life is eternal. It's not going to be taken from us. But denied that honor that we could have otherwise received. I came across a quote in my reading from Stonewall Jackson, famous Southern general of the Civil War, or as we like to call it, the War of Northern Aggression. Solid Christian man. And he wrote, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. You read that again. My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. This is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. And that man was known for his courage and bravery. And it was his Christian faith that informed him, that kept him in a place of peace, as safe in battle as in bed, because my God has fixed the day that I will be with him. That's not being presumptuous. That's not being stupid. That's a sheep knowing who protects him. And we don't protect ourselves. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you so much for the richness of your word, for speaking so plainly to us in the situations, God, that you know better than we do and you know how much it troubles our heart, how we can be so gripped and paralyzed by fear. It's not unworthy of you, God, and yet so um, indicative of, of our own um, sheepness <laughs> that we are so prone, God, to fear. But I thank you that you do understand us, and I thank you that you are the good shepherd and that you promise to care for us. And because of your hand on our lives, nothing can touch us except what you would permit, and that we can live without being under the grip and paralysis of fear. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with us, you are in us, and that all that concerns us concerns you. In Jesus' name, amen.